Great. Well, welcome here, everyone, to Bible with Bill. How many have we done now? We I think this is... Is it five? Five. I'm not sure. And we're, we're actually on the second one of a specific series. Last week, Bill introduced uh, the book of 1 Timothy, but really how to read Paul's letters, which yeah. is great. It was even like how to read the Bible in some ways, then how to read Paul's letters, and particularly the context and overarching theme of 1 Timothy. We've got Hannah here as well. Hi, Hannah. Oh, <laughs> Hannah's got a really nice mug today, and I'm talking about a mug that you drink coffee from rather than any other. <laughs> um, great, so over to you with the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Thank you very much, Alice. Um, hello, everyone, and uh, thank you for all the feedback on the first one. Um, yeah, this, so this one is going to be quite different from last time. Last time was really about preparation and laying out the approach. And uh, so this time we're going to dive in. We're going to look at most of the first chapter of uh, the letter of 1 Timothy. Um, and the uh, approach, the, the plan of action for the morning is, is first of all, to, to kind of read the text and try and read it very carefully and draw out certain things. Um, you'll see what I mean as, as we go along. Um, but then what I'm going to try and do is, um, last time we talked about different ways different techniques for reading Paul's letters that will help because he is difficult and and one of them uh one of the approaches is to to kind of follow his argument so I I said that uh most of Paul's letters have a single cohesive argument and they all they it, it all joins together and feeds into that argument and so one way to help work out what he's saying is to try and work out what that argument is and how every single paragraph kind of contributes to that argument. It, it kind of It's confirmation that you're on the right track or the wrong track if you've got a, a possible interpretation. And that's, that's particularly what we're going to be doing with um, the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Uh, because it is quite dense and it is he, he goes on in all sorts of different directions and it's very difficult to make sense of how it all glues together. So that's what we're going to be doing. Um, and then the final bit is just so so everything up to that point, reading it carefully, working out the argument is what I would call exegesis. It's uh, what is the original meaning of the of the letter. And then, but then finally, we're going to have a quick look at some applications. Uh, what do we, how do we apply this argument to our own lives? Uh, if that's all right, is that all right? Is that all right, everyone? We'll carry on then. Um, so, the, uh, firstly, I just want to do a quick recap. Um, so, I'm, I'm going to reread something we read last time because it kind of sets the scene. Uh, Hannah, if you please, this is. Um, from verse 3 that's it um, I urge you as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than the divine training that is known by faith but the aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So I don't know if you remember, Alice, but um, last time we talked about how Timothy was remaining in Ephesus, and, and Paul's written this letter to him with some instructions. And the main instruction is, clearly, there are some people, some elders, some leaders in the church at Ephesus, who are teaching stuff that's just not helpful. Yeah. And so Paul's instruction to Timothy is get them to stop, get them to stop teaching this unhelpful message and instead teach sound doctrine, um, healthy teaching. So that's the that's setting the scene. Um, I just want to um, focus on one thing in this little passage because it, it kind of sets up the framework which Paul is going to go on to develop. Um, 
And it's something that's quite typical of Paul. Um, he, he has certain key words which he uses as a sort of shorthand. Um, so a, a single word will sum up for him an entire kind of theology, an entire understanding of a certain context. And so these are, these are very rich, um, meaning-packed words. And as you're reading through Paul, you, you'll, you'll begin to spot them. Mm-hmm. And, and when you see this single word, you'll understand everything that he means by this single word. And there are a couple of them in this passage. So, uh, and I've highlighted them on the next slide. And the first of them is faith. So Paul, when Paul talks about faith, he means a whole lot. There's a whole lot of stuff that's kind of wrapped up in that single word as far as Paul is concerned. Um, very briefly, he means at least three things. Um, and part of it is a kind of cognitive um, agreement. You know, it's it's believing certain uh, claims are true. Mm. Uh, certain claims about Jesus, who he was and is, uh, the fact that he died and rose again, um, agreeing with those central claims um, of the, the Christian faith is part, it, it's certainly there for Paul. Um, but it's by no means everything. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's ju- not just a cognitive thing. What he also means is belief in, as in trust in. Um, so not only are these claims true in in an objective sense, but they're also good and reliable and worth uh, leaning on, mm. worth depending on. Um, so when... Uh, when Jesus says, do this or do that, um, part of faith is obeying mm. because these are good instructions and these are reliable um, instructions. And so it's, it's belief in as in following mm. and depending on and trusting in. Um, but there's also a third idea, which is faith as in faithfulness, mm. um, which is about loyalty to so being on Jesus' side and not on the other side. Mm. Um, allegiance, loyalty, fidelity, it's, it's picking a side mm. and choosing this side and being aligned with uh, Jesus as, as opposed mm. to uh, the other side. So there, there are three, what we would regard as three quite different but kind of related mm. ideas. All of those and more are kind of wrapped up in Paul's single word faith. And it's basically the, the human side of a vertical relationship with God. It, it's our contribution to that relationship. Um, all of those ideas are summed up in the word faith. Uh, the other one in this passage is love. Um, and when Paul talks about love... He almost, particularly when he talks about faith and love, what he means is the horizontal Mm. uh, dimension. He's talking about our relationship with other people. Mm. Uh, He he does occasionally talk about our love for God, but in general, um, his his words for our relationship with God are faith and hope um, and trust and and that kind of thing. Um, Love tends to mean in Paul, um, it's a verb. Mm. It's about what we do to express our faith in God uh, in our relationships with other people, Mm. both inside the church and outside the church. Mm. Uh, That's what he means by love. And so so faith and love go together. Mm. Faith is the vertical dimension, and love is how that faith is then expressed with other people. Um, how do I know this? Because um, that's quite a big claim. Um, I, w- I would argue that it's well recognised. Um, people who know and read Paul, um, uh, it, it's kind of widely accepted that this is how he uses these words. Uh, for example, I have Michael Gorman. So, Michael Gorman, if you're looking for a, a good, thorough introduction to Paul and his letters, I strongly recommend uh, this book. 
Um, the first half explores Paul's main themes and a bit about his history and his biography and the context and the world that he was uh, living in. And the second half then takes each of his letters uh, and does a kind mm. of chapter on, on each letter and summarises them. Gold dust. Um, but here is Michael Gorman. Um, um, the next slide, have we got uh, a Michael Gorman quote? Uh, no, next one. There we go. Yeah, that, so, sorry, that one is the, the picture that... I should have said next slide, Anna, it's my fault. Um, so that those are the two dimensions, yeah. faith in the vertical direction, love in the horizontal di- direction. But then next slide, this is what Michael says. Paul occasionally speaks of love for God, for example, in Romans and 1 Corinthians, but his preferred terms for the human relationship with God are faith, mm-hmm. obedience, and hope. And then listen to this. In the triad of faith, hope, and love, which you get all the time in Paul, Paul always talks about faith, hope, and love, the term love always refers to love for others, mm. not for God. Mm. So, but the thing is, this frame, can we go back one again? Mm-hmm. This framework, the vertical dimension that Paul calls faith, the horizontal dimension mm. that he calls love, is the framework that he's going to develop throughout this yeah. letter. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really good to have this in mind. Um, final thought in this preamble before we dive in is where do you think he's going to go next? Mm-hmm. Okay, so he, he's, set it, he's set up the question for us. There's good teaching and there's bad teaching going on in Ephesus and Paul needs to stamp, uh, uh, Timothy needs to stamp out the, the bad teaching and demonstrate the good teaching. If you heard him say that, what's your next question? What do you want to know? Well, you kind of would think, well, what is bad teaching? What is good teaching? The obvious next question mm. is, Paul, what do you mean by mm. bad teaching? What do you mean by good teaching? Well, that's exactly what he does. He, un- he, un- mm. he starts to unpack this idea of what these teachers are teaching and why it's unhealthy and what the alternative is and why the alternative is healthy. Um, and the way he does it is so original. It, it's so characteristically Paul. It, it shows how his mind works. And it's completely brilliant, but it's quite hard to follow. So let's have a look at it. Um, so if we can go to the next slide, we should be verses 6 to 11. Okay. And let's um, read from our big volumes. So this time... We're, um, I'm quoting from the NRSV, um, and there's a very good reason for that, which I'm not going to go into now. Uh, but if you want to know why, um, come and ask me. And maybe um, in a future podcast, we'll talk about choosing different translations for different purposes. Um, if you want to do detailed kind of textual analysis, then something like the NRSV or the NASB yeah. is probably the way to go. If you're doing other stuff, um, then you may want to choose a completely different version. But mm. NRSV, that's where we are. So, verses 6 to it. This is what Paul says next. Some people have deviated from these, as in faith and love. He's referring to what he's just talked about. Some people have deviated from faith and love and turned to meaningless talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make assertions. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it legitimately. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Okay, so to summarize, these teachers in Ephesus, they're trying to teach the law, um, but, but Paul's argument is they don't know what they're doing. They don't, they don't understand either the law or what they're trying to do by teaching the law, that, which is a, a kind of stinging claim. Um, 
But what's going on here? Why why has he dived into this kind of list of sins? Um, what's his argument? Um, I just want to point out a few things in this little passage, these five or so verses. Um, if we can move to the next slide, please, Hannah. So uh, this is, what have we got now? Oh, no, go back, uh, go back to the previous one. So <laughs> I may have given it away by jumping on to the next slide. But um, if we look at verses um, 9 and 10, uh, so he's describing these people. For those who, now listen to this, people who kill their father or mother for murderers, fornicators and sodomites, slave traders, liars and perjurers, that list of um, of things, that list of sins, does it remind you of anything? Does it have any echoes? Um, and I think the answer is it might. And if so, it's because of... And if we move to the next slide now. What he's doing is he's basing it on the second half of the Ten Commandments. Um, so if you look at uh, I've kind of broken it out his list and how it matches on to um, commandments 5 to 9 but two things about so first first thing to note is when he's talking about law and what these people are doing in Ephesus he's he means law as law as the legal code you know we Law has two meanings when we're talking about the Hebrew scriptures. You can either be talking about law as in the Torah, the, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, um, which re Torah really means teaching rather than law. But, but wrapped up within those five books is the legal code, the law. And the centre of the legal code is the Ten Commandments. That's the framework for the entire legal code. And so clearly that's what he has in mind here. He's talking about law as the legal code. But look at how he kind, he kind of riffs on the Ten Commandments. And he does two things. Firstly, what he does is he's, he kind of takes the commandment and exaggerates it. Mm. So instead of honour your father and mother, he talks about people who kill their father mm. and mother, mm. which is even worse um, than murder for murderers. But look at the next one. You shan't commit adultery. Mm. And he talks about fornicators and sodomites. Um, you shall not steal. And he talks about slave trade. What's the worst form of mm. theft? than actually stealing a per kidnapping a person and for money. You know, it's the worst kind. You shall not give false testimony. He talks about liars and perjury. People are willing to stand up in court and lie. Um, and so he's he's exact he's taking the the framework of the, the Ten Commandments, or at least five of those commandments, and he's kind of exaggerating. Um but there's something else which is the Ten Commandments are a set of instructions. And we do find these uh, sin lists in, in Paul, which are a bit like um, condemnation of certain acts. Mm -hmm. But he's doing something subtly different here, which is he's not describing the act. He's talking about a kind of person, mm -hmm. certain kinds of people. So next slide, please, Hannah. If you look at verse 9, he says... We need to understand that the law is laid down, not for the innocent, but for, and then he goes on to describe these people, the lawless and disobedient, the godless and sinful, etc., etc. So this is actually a list of people, list of kinds of people, rather than a list of actions. Um, and so he's, he's taken the Ten Commandments, but he's, he's turned it into a list of people who do things that are even worse than the Ten Commandments suggest. So what's going on here? Um, Paul begins by saying that the law, when used lawfully, is good. And it is good 
when you're dealing with people like this, because that's exactly how laws work. Mm. They restrain mm. bad behaviour. People who are wild and out of control, the law restricts them so they can't do too much damage. That's exactly what laws do. Um, for example, let's take my favourite word in this list, which is clearly fornicators. It's such a delicious <laughs> word. Now let's think about let's think about fornicators. Why do fornicators fornicate? Because it's who they are. Because they basically because they want to. They want to. Um, and so the challenge is, if you want a society where families exist and they're not completely broken down, how do you make? How do you take people who are fornicators and make them faithful enough that families can can exist? Um, well, you make adultery illegal, and you attach a pretty stern penalty to it, like being stoned to death. <laughs> That's so fear of transgressing the law acts to restrain people from doing what they naturally want to do. And, and so to that extent, laws are good because they restrict bad people from doing bad things. That's exactly how laws work. What they can't do is turn you into a good person. We're just the same. Uh, instead of fornicators, because um, I'm sure none, none of us are, you out there as well. Um, what about 85 mile an hour drivers? Um, I admit in the past, and maybe sometimes in the present, I, on the motorway, if the conditions are right, I'm an 85 mile an hour driver. Why? Because I want to. Because it's who I am. It seems appropriate to me. It seems fine. I have all sorts of arguments like, um, you know, when the 70 mile an hour limit was introduced, most cars had drum brakes, the braking distance of about 100 metres. Mm. Today we have disc brakes, we have anti-lock braking. You can stop in a third of the distance. You know, it's ridiculous to drive, etc., etc., etc. So I'm driving along the motorway at 85 miles an hour, and in the distance, on the, up on the hard shoulder... I spot a, a white car with day-glow uh, green and blue stripes. Mm. What do I do? Mm. Well, I ease off the throttle. Don't touch the brake because then the front of the car dips and everyone knows what you're doing. What you do is you <laughs> ease, ease off the throttle and you gently reduce your speed to 70 and you drive past the police car at 70 until you can no longer see it in your rearview mirror. But what do you do then? Well, you speed up again because I haven't changed. Mm. I'm still an 85-mile-an-hour driver. Mm. The law hasn't changed. It's restrained my behavior for a bit, mm. but it hasn't actually changed who I am. Mm. Um, that because that's how laws work. And so law is good for this kind of person. Mm. It restrains bad behavior. It's, it's appropriate for this kind of person. It's a bit like... Can we have the next slide, please, Hannah? Should we have a picture? Yeah. It's like we're wild animals. Mm. The law acts as the mm. fence to keep us from doing too much damage. Mm. But we're still wild animals. Yeah. And so the law is good when used appropriately, mm. when used lawfully, as in Paul's language. But... There's an implication in this. Paul is laying out this argument and he's, he's saying that these bad teachers in, in Ephesus are, are trying to teach the law as though they're dealing with this kind of person. Now there's an implication there, which is he's saying they're erecting the fence where it's not necessary. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Now that means... There's another kind of person. Mm. Um, if there's a situation where the law is inappropriate, then that must mean there are some people who, where the law is, is unnecessary. Mm. They don't need the law because they're a different kind of person. If they're free, they're not going to cause damage. Mm. They're not going to harm others. Well, what kind of person is that, Paul? Let's read on. Uh, so next next little bit uh, from 
verse 12. Now, Paul's going to describe the, the kind of person who doesn't need the law, where the law is inappropriate. But look how he does it. I'm grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I received mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul paints a new picture He's moved on from the law. This is the picture of the kind of person who the law is unnecessary for. And, and his picture is of himself. He is, he's saying, yes, there's a different kind of person. And if you want to know what that kind of person looks like, look at me. I'm the prime example of this. Now, now look what he's not saying. He's not saying, they're bad people. I'm a good person. In fact, he, he quite clearly says the opposite. Look at verse 15. Um, should be the next slide. So highlighted verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners mm. of whom I am the foremost. Mm. I, uh, in the Greek, I, I'm the leading sinner mm. is what Paul calls himself. And also notice the present tense. It's not I used to be awful. I used to be a terrible sinner. No, I am the leading sinner, Paul describes himself as. So it's not about I'm a good person. It's all about what Jesus has done, how Jesus has transformed him and is transforming him. Uh, what he's saying is Jesus takes the worst kind of person and transforms them into something completely different, someone who doesn't need the law. Um, but all the credit and all the work, all, all the work is done by Jesus, all the credit goes to Jesus. Paul isn't blowing his own trumpet. He's saying, look at me, I was the worst, but look at what Jesus has done with me. Uh, for example, uh, next slide please. Look in, in, the, in this passage, all the things that Jesus has done in him. So we've got, he's strengthened me, I received mercy, uh, he saved sinners. He saved me because I was the foremost. I received mercy again. He demonstrated the utmost patience. It's all about what Jesus has done in and to Paul. But my favourite of, of this whole uh, paragraph is verse 14. And I want to just camp out here for a little bit. Read verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, for me, that, this, that sentence is the heart of this paragraph. This is, we're returning to Paul's framework. So, so note again, faith and love. This is the picture that Paul has in mind. Faith, the vertical dimension, and love, the horizontal dimension. Um, so, but, but what has caused... Paul to respond to to God with faith and to respond to other people with love. Mm. What is it that's that's brought about this transformation in him? It's all about the grace that's been poured into him. And, and look at this. The, the grace of our Lord overflowed in faith and love. So there's so much grace that's been poured into his life, so much free um, acceptance, love, life, forgiveness, mercy has all been poured into his life. And he's experienced it in such a tangible way that he doesn't know what to do with it all. He's got so much overflowing that he can't help but respond to, to God to, and especially to Jesus in, in faith which means all of those things we talked about before. And 
he can't help but respond to everyone around him with love. And that's why he is someone for whom there's no need for offence. You know, if you... Uh, if your heart is full of love, uh, you're not going to go anywhere near the fence. Because uh, the fence is all about restraining the worst, the most selfish aspects of human nature. Um, if, you, if you return to the fornicators, you know, someone whose heart is full of love, and especially love as, as Paul means, which is love as demonstrated by Jesus, self-giving, self-denying love, that kind of person will always be utterly faithful, like mm. God is, and utterly self-giving. Mm. So they wouldn't dream of the kind of lustful taking that's mm. involved in being a fornicator. Um, and so, so mm. someone like Paul, someone in whom Jesus has, has done all this work so that they're utterly transformed into a person of faith and love, isn't going anywhere near the fence. Mm. Um, and so that's why he, he has kind of contempt for these teachers in Ephesus because they just haven't got it. You know, this community that they're supposed to be leading is meant to be a community of Jesus, a community which is all receiving this grace and expressing it as, as faith and love. Um, and that's his final point. He, he, he calls himself the example, but the implication of that is it's an example that he expects to see repeated. Mm. He expects to see lots of little Pauls, you know, mm. seeing the same transformation going on in in the, in the lives of, of the people in Ephesus. Mm. Um, so to, to summarise um, Paul's argument so far, I think it works like this. Um, Paul reckons that the law works like this. The law is offence to restrain wild people. Um, but his argument is that Jesus can, can transform people like that into people like <laughs> this. You know, people who are utterly benign, faithful, just Im imagine a perfectly trained <laughs> Um, golden retriever <laughs> and the, the the relationship that a golden retriever has with mm. their master or mistress yes. it's utter faithfulness and obedience and love and mutual love mm. it, it's care, it's concern from the owner mm. and it's a response of obedience and love um, in return and that's and this is Paul's argument that this is what Jesus is all about. He's about bringing about this transformation in our lives. But the the people in the the elders in Ephesus have have completely missed the point. It's interesting. It's almost exactly the same argument that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he says, "You have heard, do not commit adultery." But I say to you, mm. do not even look at a woman lustfully. Mm. You know, again, it's you, you should be so far from the fence. Because if you've got love in your heart as a result of this relationship that you have with God, then you wouldn't dream mm. of straying anywhere near adultery. In fact, you wouldn't even look. You know, you're so far from grabbing. Mm. Um, and it, it's, it's exactly the same as Paul's argument, just expressed in a completely different way. And the trouble is, Paul has visited Ephesus expecting to find all these mini-Pauls, you know, growing and, and turning into, um, turning into people, being transformed by Jesus. And he finds that that's not happening, and his diagnosis, his root cause is, remember, is about teaching. Mm. He pins the blame on these elders who are teaching. Um, and I think there's an implication here. And the, again, following through Paul's argument, the implication is there's a kind of teaching which God uses to bring about this transformation. Mm. And these elders aren't doing it. Mm. 
And so they're, they're doing bad teaching, and so it's not bearing good fruit in people's lives. So Paul's saying that there's a kind of teaching which somehow results in God pouring out his grace into people's lives so that it, so those people are transformed into people of um, love and faith. It's utterly transformative. Um, like it was in Paul's, he is the example of what he expects to see in others' lives. Okay, so I, I now want to zero, that, that's, that's his argument. I want to go look, but it raises two further questions. And in fact, they're the same questions. He's kind of laid out a scenario, a framework. But we still haven't actually answered the question, what is good teaching and what is bad teaching? So that's what I want to come back to finally. So what is good, healthy teaching? Um, it's been interesting reading some of the um, commentaries because some uh, people argue that, well, clearly, good teaching means biblical teaching. What we want is Bible teaching. And I'm not convinced, actually, because these Ephesian teachers were teaching yeah. the Bible. Yeah. They were teaching the Ten Commandments mm. or the law. Uh, we don't know exactly what they were teaching. But they were clearly trying to be teachers of the Old Testament law. Um, so I don't think it's so much about the content. I mean, it, clearly the content does need to be biblical. But it's much more about the way in which you use that content. And what I would say is good teaching is... Next slide, please, Hannah. Good teaching is... Christ-centred. Um, good teaching is Christ-centred. Now, what do I mean by that? Do I, do I mean it's just the Gospels? Mm. We can forget the Hebrew Scriptures and we can forget everything after. Uh, and I don't think that's true at all. I think it's much more to read the whole Scripture, the whole the Old Testament and New Testament, but through the lens of Jesus, mm. in the light of um, everything that Jesus has done. Mm. Um, for example, if you look at how all the New Testament writers um, use the Old Testament, mm. they, they all take an Old Testament story or passage or quotation and use it to explain, to, put, to shine a light on mm. Jesus and what Jesus, because they, they fundamentally believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of that story up to that point. And so the Old Testament's useful because it helps us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Um, and here's a great example Paul, the, the, old, the, um, the Ephesian teachers teach about the law. Paul is also in this letter using the the Ten Commandments, but he's kind of using them as a counterexample mm. in order to highlight what Jesus does. Mm. And so he is also using the Ten Commandments, but his whole focus, the, the purpose of his teaching, is to give people a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. And that's what I mean by Christ-centred. Um, The trouble is, I think that begs a question. Um, if Paul is an example of how good teaching works, because he, because of the transformation that took place in his life, um, what was Paul's experience? Because there's a there's a kind of mismatch here. Paul's talking about Paul's focus in this letter is teaching and having good teaching going on in the church. But what actually happened to Paul? He wasn't sitting in church listening to a sermon. Mm -hmm. So what was it that transformed Paul? Um, well, you can read about it in Acts 9. And it's a, it's a brilliant story, which I'm sure most people will be familiar with. What happened to Paul? He encountered the risen Jesus. He kind of had a road to Damascus experience, Alice. Mm. Um, and coincidentally, he had it on the road to Damascus, <laughs> which is that. extraordinary. I yeah, mean, it is extraordinary. Yeah. 
Um, but we know the story. Yeah. So, so Paul wasn't listening to a talk. Mm. And that wasn't what transformed him. Um, he had this experience of the risen Jesus. But it was a, Jesus' presence was there. Um, and he, he went blind and, you know, and it was utter repentance. He was heading in one direction on the way to Damascus to wipe out a few more of these believers and encountering Jesus utterly transformed him and sent him in the opposite direction. So do we get it? What Paul is saying, Paul seems to believe that the experience of listening to what he regards as good teaching will have the same effect in the lives of the people who hear this good teaching. You know, if Timothy does it right, he will teach in such a way that the people who hear him are transformed in the same way that Paul was transformed. In other words, this teaching is not just a cognitive intellectual, it's not just learning facts. Mm. It's not just knowing the story. It results in an encounter with Jesus as powerful as the encounter with Jesus that Paul had. And I think that's the heart of his point. Yeah. That um, Jesus isn't going to appear to everyone like, the, like he appeared to Paul. Yeah. Paul was a one-off. Paul's experience yeah. is a one-off. But he will encounter everyone. Um, but the way it will happen with most people is through hearing this message. Mm. Um, when it's working well, Christ-centered teaching opens up this opportunity yeah. for people to encounter Jesus. It's not just learning about him, it's so that we meet him yeah. and so that he has a transforming effect in our lives. And I, I think this is how it works. We, we listen to a talk about Jesus somehow and it can be, you know, it can be... There's a vast range of content, topics that it could be based on. But the purpose is to give us a new insight into who Jesus is and what he does. So we learn about Jesus, what he said and did, what he's saying and doing. And then as we're listening about him, we're reminded that he's not dead, he's alive. Mm. And he's not far away, he's present. And he's not he's he's not unconnected to us or um, unconcerned about us. Actually, he's very interested in our lives, and he's currently ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. So this this person who we start to just hear about as a kind of subject, as an objective set of facts, a historical story. We suddenly realise we're, we're, we're hearing about someone who is, who is real and present and alive and interested in us. But more than that, someone who is still laying down a challenge, laying down an invitation to us personally in the same way that he did when he encountered people in uh, 2,000 years ago. He's still saying to us, repent and follow me. Which puts us on the spot and we have to choose. Am I going to turn towards him or am I going to turn away from him? And as soon as I begin to turn toward, to respond to that invitation or that command by turning towards him, which is the beginning of faith, then through that route, the, everything begins to pour into our lives. Uh, grace, mercy, forgiveness, life, uh, strength, joy, peace, hope, all of that stuff begins to trickle into our lives because we've turned to him in response to an understanding of who he is and that he's here and that he's making an invitation, making a call. Um, and of course, it's the Holy Spirit who works with us in this whole process if we're teachers we tell the story of jesus the holy spirit makes it real yeah. he's the one who convinces and convicts yeah. he's the one who who kind of um 
affirms the truth of what we're saying. But far more, he's the one who puts a spotlight on Jesus, who presents Jesus so that we encounter him um, in, in just as real a way as Paul did on the road to Damascus. Um, and I, what I love about this passage is the final verse that we haven't looked at yet. Because so often in Paul, talking about Jesus, which is what he's been doing in these five verses, turns into praise. Yeah. Because that's exactly how Paul works. Yeah. He can't think about Jesus without recognizing, without turning to Jesus. And so verse 17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's so typically Paul. He'll, he'll be writing a letter to this bunch of people in, in you know, wherever, um, Galatia. And he can't help himself but break into prayer for them or praise to Jesus and to God the Father because it's all one to him. Mm. This God is so real and present. And that's what his message does. It opens up that connection. Mm. It, it, re it reprograms our brains and invites us to connect to the God who is real. Mm. Um, and so fi uh, lastly, so we, we've, for me, that is what good teaching means. Mm -hmm. So what, what's bad teaching? Um, is it just uh, the law? Is it focusing on the law? I don't think so. I think he, he, he zeroes in on the fact that these teachers in Ephesus are, are trying to teach the law because mm -hmm. it really helps his argument that they're missing the point. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly... Um, laying down the law is is not good teaching that's part of it but i think it's just an example because uh look at all the different ways in which paul describes that it's it's hard to work out everything that these bad teachers are teaching but look at the way he describes what they're teaching uh in this next slide um so he describes he says they're wrong because they're teaching any different doctrine so anything that's different from, uh, and e even more literally, the, the Greek word means novelties, mm. coming up with something new and different mm. from. And, and so again, what he has in mind is there's this valuable message, which has the power to transform lives. Anything else is just a waste of time. Mm. It might be about the law, it might be about something completely different, but why waste time on something mm. that's, uh, that's different that's meaningless mm. and i love this he talks about endless genealogies that promote speculation endless that mm. kind of wearisome boring yeah. they're going on and on and on mm. about stuff that is mm. just not going to bear fruit in people's lives so why do it mm. so i think i think when he talks about bad teaching what he has in mind is anything else mm. anything that strays away from this good healthy sound message which brings about trans transformation in people's lives because of the way in which god works through it mm. um, that's what he means by bad teaching so i think that's his argument yeah. okay have we got time for a few applications yeah, yeah, so definitely. three applications yeah uh, this this is so, so far, I think that's what Paul was saying. Mm. That's what Paul was saying to, to Timothy yeah. in Ephesus. Having understood what he's saying, um, what does that mean for us? Mm. How can we apply that to our lives? In all sorts of ways. Mm. There are always 20 applications. Mm. Um, and I'm sure you have thought of some already. But here are some ideas. Um, it occurs to me that... Um, churches tend not to know what they're doing when it comes to the teaching bit. Um, because so often um, we see it as a purely intellectual exercise. You know, it's about, uh, it's described as Christian education, as though here are some good things that it's worth knowing. Here's some information which will, um, which will help you in your Christian life. Um, it's good to understand the Bible because it's biblical. Mm. 
And I, I think that's missing the point. Um, it, uh, it, the, the power of good teaching is that it transforms people's lives. Yeah. And I, I think it's back to this framework, Paul's framework of faith and love. Mm -hmm. Often in churches, we see them as entirely unconnected mm -hmm. because the faith bit is either an intellectual exercise or it's purely about my relationship with God and my feelings towards God. Um, whereas the, the love bit, the horizontal bit, is about um, the stuff I do for others. Mm. But what Paul does is he joins the... Do you remember that? Yeah. The overflow of God's grace into his life results in faith towards God and love towards yeah. people. And so they're entirely connected. Mm. And so um, he, he goes to Ephesus and he diagnoses something wrong. Mm. But the root cause is, for him is this teaching. Because the good teaching should result in both faith and love. Mm. Um, and so it's not purely an intellectual exercise. Mm. It's, um, we, in churches, we tend to have people who like to sit still and think. And we have people who like to be up and busy and doing. And they're often seen as kind of in competition or, you know, intention, um, as though they're the... They're completely different activities. Mm. Um, but in Paul's picture, when God works in our lives, it results in both. And they're entirely complementary. The better the teaching, the more you will <coughs> see love in people's lives. Um, so that, that's, that's the first thing. And also it's the thing that sets up the rest of the letter. Because mm. what you'll yeah. see is he dives into what's act, what he sees in, in Ephesus that, mm. that's actually going wrong. And it tends to be a lot about uh, the interpersonal relationships mm. and the disagreement and the fights. And the part of it's about mm. selfishness and greed on the part of some people. And it's easy to read the letter and think, oh, he's just saying you should try harder not to be bad people. Mm. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this is evidence yeah. that you're not connected to the source. Mm. It all hangs together for Paul. Yeah. Um, the second application is for people who people like you and I, mm. Alice, who stand yeah. up on our hind legs in church and, and deliver talks. Yeah. Um, what are we doing? Um, I, I think this studying this chapter has really challenged me yeah. to think through very clearly, yeah. you know, is everything I say when I'm teaching, is the, is the overall aim of it yeah. to turn people towards Jesus? That's good. Regardless, you know, it could be a talk about in Ecclesiastes, yeah. it could be about, you know... Uh, revelation or whatever but is, is the end result to help people have a deeper richer understanding of Jesus so that they respond by turning towards him um, so that's the first thing but uh, there's something else in, in here which is um, just in the in the early bit of the passage verses 5 to 7 next slide please listen to this so he, he talks about um how the aim of good teaching is faith and love in people's lives. Mm. Do you like that? Mm, it's it's like a little, so you know, um, <laughs> faith and love in people's lives. <laughs> yeah. um, but who does he have in mind as the people who aren't demonstrating faith and love? Is it everyone at Ephesus? Mm. Well, I think partly, but also listen to this. Um, uh, the aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. Some people, I wonder who, have deviated from these and turned to meaningless talk, desiring to be teachers of the law. Ooh. So he clearly has yeah. in mind that the people who are standing up as leaders, elders, claiming to be the, the, um, the models in the church... They don't even have, have faith and love in their own lives. Yeah. They are not uh, demonstrating what, they're, what they should be preaching. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the other reason why he chooses to use himself as an example mm -hmm. of what good looks like. Because he's saying the message that I preach 
needs to be seen in my life. Mm. Now that's a profound challenge yeah. if we call ourselves yeah. teachers, if we, if we attempt to teach. Is, is everything that I teach when I yeah. stand up on a Sunday morning, is that an expression of my love for the people I'm speaking to? Yeah. What's my motive in doing it? Mm. And does it come out of a faithful relationship with Jesus? Mm. You know, is my conscience clear that I am um, acting transparently before him mm. as I stand there and communicate a message? Mm. Am I doing it for the right reasons? Um, and also, if, if I don't believe in what I'm saying enough to put it into practice in my life, why should you? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's so important that yeah. the, um, the, the speaker, the teacher, is an example of what they're teaching. Because mm. otherwise, why should you believe me? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a challenge. Yeah. Final point, though, um, is this. Um, and it brings us to another of Paul's big words. We, we've looked at faith and love. He has all sorts of words which mean a whole load. Mm. And when you read them in his letters, I think he, he, he intends for people who know him well to remember what it means to him. Um, so the, there's faith, love, hope. Uh, the little phrase, in Christ, mm. which is easy to miss, which, mm. but it's absolutely loaded with meaning. Um, but I think there's another one, which is he has a word for this rich, life-transforming message about Jesus, about who Jesus was and is, about what he did and what he does, about what he's doing now and what he will do in the future. And he calls this word the gospel. Mm -hmm. And he sums it up in this passage. So he talks about the glorious gospel of the blessed God. When Paul uses the word gospel, mm -hmm. that's his label for everything I've been talking about mm -hmm. as sound doctrine, healthy teaching, the good message that he wants Timothy to be, to be teaching. And the thing is, when you, when you read Paul in the... 13 letters he is absolutely dedicated to the gospel mm. it's what drives his mission he, mm. he is convinced that this message is powerful yeah. it's utterly powerful and we, we see in this chapter <coughs> why that is because of how it's transformed his life and how he sees that it has the power to transform people's lives mm. he thinks this is the thing that will make these communities Christ-like is this message that he calls the gospel. Mm. And the trouble is today, when we say the word gospel, we tend to mean something else. Mm. Um, in most churches today, I think, uh, when we say gospel, people think about a 60-second presentation, mm. which is an answer to the question, <coughs> how, how do I get saved? Yeah. And it's normally yeah. three points beginning ABC or it's three verses from Romans mm -hmm. or it's uh, and, and when we when we hear the word gospel that's what comes to mind mm -hmm. and the trouble is that when we're reading Paul if that's what comes to mind when we see him use the word gospel we'll completely miss this mm -hmm. powerful thing that he's talking about um, and and I'm not saying that that presentation of how do I get saved is wrong necessarily mm -hmm. I just think it's the answer to a different question. Mm. And the danger is we'll miss out on what Paul's really saying. Mm. What Paul meant was this story, this new story about Jesus. This is, this is my summary of Paul's gospel. What he's talking about is that the, this new story mm. about Jesus, about who he was and is, um, and everything that, that he's done, everything that Jesus has done and is doing, um, his, his birth, his life, meaning his teaching and his actions, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his um, present and future rule and reign. All of the, the story that sums that up for Paul is the gospel. And what he's fascinated by is how the, the other part of his message is how that story changes everything. Yeah. How that story transforms mm. my life and your lives and transforms the world 
and will transform the world. Mm. And you may think, well, that's that's you. Where do you get that from? Mm. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a in in church um, situations for thirty years, mm. believing that the gospel meant a sixty-second presentation mm. of how do I get saved. So this is this idea that Paul means something completely much bigger yeah. and much more about who Jesus is and what he does. Where is there any evidence for that? I mean, it's it's another podcast series. Mm-hmm. I'd I'd love to do a series on what is the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, but just as a little illustration, um, in our Bibles there are four books mm-hmm. at the beginning of the yeah. New Testament. Yeah. Um, what are they? They are biographies of Jesus, but they're unusual biographies because they, as well as telling the story of Jesus, they focus on how Jesus fulfilled all of the story of Israel, the people of God up to that point. Mm. And they particularly focus on the last week of his life mm. and his resurrection. So they're they're biographies, but they're unusual biographies. Mm. What do we call those four books? What genre are they? I don't know what the genre is, but the gospel? Well done, yeah. Most people call them the gospels, and they're almost right. What those four books are is they are all the gospel. Yeah. But they're just four different tellings of mm. the gospel. They're the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark. Mm. But they are the gospel. Mm. And remember, Paul was rattling around the eastern Mediterranean before they were written. Mm. So what's the message that he's carrying to people who can't read it? Mm. The message that he's carrying to people is the message that those four uh, volume those four mm-hmm. um, texts contained mm-hmm. um, there's a lot more to be said um, but the thing is in it's in that story mm-hmm. when told in the right way that we have the opportunity to discover uh, love and life yeah. and grace and peace and wholeness and joy um, because we discover him there. Mm. We don't just learn the story, we get introduced to him mm. as we focus on the story. Mm. That's it, more next time. Oh, next time, I think we're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy 2.12, most wait. troublesome verse in the New Testament. That's brilliant. Good. Thank you so much, Bill. You're, um, you're mightily welcome, Alice. That was actually really helpful for me personally. Oh, good. It's like a mentoring session. I was like, well, <laughs> that was a good result. Um, I think the thing I find really exciting is that is it's like just beginning to open my eyes to the endless depth of, of getting to know Jesus. Mm. That, that is in, he is inexhaustible. Mm. So we can teach again and again and again and always have fresh encounters of him. Yeah. And that, that being the goal or the aim of teaching is just so liberating, such good news mm. that it begins and ends in a person. Absolutely. And that is the application, that is the transformation, that is the, the that encounter will be the thing that forms us and makes the difference and as just that in itself is good news. Mm-hmm. And I felt, as you were speaking, you, I don't know if Hannah felt this, but I felt like it actually did draw us to Jesus. Like, I felt like I was turned to him mm. through you looking at 1 Timothy 1. So you kind of exemplified oh. in your teaching <laughs> what you're saying about what good teaching um, is designed to be. So oh, that was really th- helpful. Thanks for the feedback really Mm. good and I'd actually like to end with a prayer of Paul that he prays in Ephesians which is Mm. kind of I can see now a lot of pennies dropping for me when I see threads in Paul's letters that this is how he's what he's operating what he's thinking about what he wants so it's a lovely prayer in Ephesians about this Lord I thank you so much that um, it, it, it is in you 
that is fullness of life, there's transformation, there's power, reality, love, everything is in you, and that all our teaching, all our conversation, all our encouragement, our exhortation is finds its kind of meaning and goodness in, in turning one another towards you. And so I end with Paul's prayer. I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, mm. that we may get to know you, Jesus, better as listeners on this journey together with Bill, as those of us in Hope Chapel, uh, a body of, of friends and, and family on this journey together, and anyone else listening to this, I bless us that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, that we may, may get to know you better. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Hannah. See you next time. Yes, indeed. Bye. (laughs) Bye.